one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. We have a hell of a show for you. Oh, my debit here with Kieran Murphy. Hello there, Owen. Hi, Kieran and Ken Early. Hello, I'm not too bad at all. I'm not doing too badly at all, Ken. We have got a very big guest on today's programme, and a very big guest demands very intensive research. This is a tough old job, as I'm sure you're aware. So last night, I got the laptop out and rewatched one of my favourite sports movies of all time, The Fighter, starring Mark Wahlberg. As today's guest, Irish Mickey Ward is in Dublin. He's in town. He's in studio today. These are the lens that I will go to, Murph, to research my subjects. I'll uh, watch movies that I absolutely would... Uh, funny, I watched it again thinking, why haven't I watched The Fighter a second time since I watched it the first time? It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it is a really good movie. Uh, and, you know, if it's... I, I can only speak as a researcher on this show for you, on that I'm going to try and make sure in future to just have as many guests on this show that you can watch a movie about in lieu of, <laughs> or should I say, as well as your regular research. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm, all I can do, on is tell you that I'm going to try to get more movie-worthy guests on this show for you. I okay. would have been excited about talking to this man, even if that movie had never existed. His three fights against Arturo Gatti go down as some of the greatest individual fights of all time. When you put them together, it constitutes one of the top boxing trilogies in an era when a lot of their contemporaries were looking at ways of avoiding fighting each other, as still happens. These two men jumped in the ring to regularly fight. The fighter actually ends before those bouts, focuses more on an earlier part of his career and really on his relationship, Ken, if you remember it well, with uh, his brother Dickie Eklund, played by Christian Bale, who himself had fought, famously fought and knocked down Sugar Ray Leonard and got That's to a pretty high level. Dickie Eklund. Yeah. Not Christian Bale. Christian Bale. Christian Bale has never fought Sugar no, Ray Dickie Leonard. Dickie Eklund, played yeah. by Christian Bale. That <laughs> his say. preparation for the role didn't quite uh, include the fighting Sugar Ray Leonard. Well, maybe not uh, well, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. Leonard. Well, maybe uh, maybe did, Ken. We might be able to ask Irish Mickey Ward about that, but... Uh, there was a bit of a centre point to the movie, the the relationship between the two brothers. Yeah, uh, and if you look back at other great boxing movies, well, Raging Bull is the one that jumps out immediately, and that is at its core. If if there's any 
relationship in that movie that's more uh, pointed than uh, Jake LaMotta's own self-loathing. It is his relationship also with his brother um, and the Joe Pesci character in Raging Bull do- doesn't have anything like the boxing pedigree that uh, Dickie Eklund has. But um, For people unfamiliar with it, uh, Dickie Eklund has had serious drug problems which are a, a centre point of the movie and a centre point of his story. Uh, and Mickey Ward would, would have always been, was certainly seen as almost the opposite not quite the the same level of talent necessarily but somebody who got a lot more out of it ultimately despite a lot of defeats early on in his career and just the the type of fights he was involved in we uh, we were both caught in a youtube black hole again last night Murph, mm. uh, watching some of the uh, some of the fights not necessarily involving gatti ones that, that I wouldn't have been as familiar with during Mickey Ward's actual career and it's just staggering i would also be interested about any sort of long term impact on his health from those fights uh, and various other issues surrounding that. So we'll get to all of that with Irish Mickey Ward in studio today. We're talking Ireland-England in the Six Nations with Shane Horgan and Stuart Barnes and it's Cricket World Cup time, which means it's Kevin O'Brien time, Irf. He's mm-hmm. back in the sporting consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I was I was watching the game on uh, uh, Wednesday morning. Yeah, yesterday morning. And so I got up, I think, a lot as a lot of people did, Said right, okay, I'll get up in time for the second innings and let's see what's see what's what. So Arinder won the toss again, uh, decided to bowl again, and uh, your the number that I saw in the top right hand corner of the screen was a little higher than I was uh, expecting. Arinder uh, trotting along, not really making a whole lot of headway. Uh, five wickets down, uh, and I was thinking. If ever there was a game and a moment specifically designed for one particular player, it was uh, Kevin O'Brien. And as he's shown at now two World Cups, he is very adept at scoring a lot of runs in not a lot of time. Yeah, and uh, it, he's got an argument for being Ireland's most exciting sportsman in the way that he approaches. <laughs> and I know uh, we say this uh, having not watched uh, a huge amount of cricket, and I confess to that in the years in between mm. World Cups, it's I suppose like a lot of sports fans, it kind of arrives at World Cup time. And I know there's a huge amount of great work being done behind the scenes and all those things. But uh, then Kevin O'Brien's, uh, O'Brien uh, arrives into your life <laughs> and makes things that bit more exciting. He's an unbelievable player to watch. We'll talk to him from Canberra. The team have travelled from Brisbane. Why don't they, they all do the it, though? You know, that's what everyone asks about Kevin O'Brien. Why don't they, why don't they all just go out? Because they have 50 overs and uh, you would be out in 20 if you all played like Kevin O'Brien. But uh, it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, so we're all part. Ken, you're part of the Blarney Army now at this stage, aren't you? I haven't actually seen any of it. So you're not part of you're not a paid up member of the Blarney Army. The Irish I don't think you have to even watch the cricket. I mean, a, a, a few supportive tweets would probably put you. I mean, I think you'd be put on a waiting list for the Blarney. Well, Army. let's stick to the Champions League. You'd be then, part then. of the reserve. You'd be part of the National Guard <laughs> of the Blarney Army. Is what you'd be. Unbelievable week in the Champions League and some great TV too. I don't know if you saw Diddy Hamman and John Giles last night. I saw a bit of it. Yeah, um, D- Diddy Hamman became not the first and not the last pundit to try to get. It. The last word? Yeah, to come to understand that you're not going to have the last word against John Giles. If you want the last word, you're going to have to go about two hours over the scheduled broadcast time because John Giles is not going to stop making his point. Yeah, The argument was, was about what Arsenal, whether, should, whether they should have said, um, OK, 2-1, that'll do. It's only half time. Or yeah, Diddy felt that that's what they should have done, whereas John said, if you're playing in a game like that... You're going to go for 2-2. You're going to go for 2-2. Um, I actually agreed with Giles in this one. I don't think... There was any need to... I don't think you just say, OK, let's not concede. Of course, you don't want to concede a second goal, ideally, but it seems a bit defeatist to say, mm. well, we've just scored one, but we'll actually we'll hang on till the next game to try and get back at them. Mm. I suppose 
it would have been better than what they ended up doing, which was uh, standing by while a teammate got mugged and then watching Monaco streak away and score sure, but third jo- jo- goal. I think John's, John Giles' point was that that wasn't a result of uh, a decision. It wasn't a decision, do we do one thing, do we do the other? That was just a bad execution of yeah. whatever it's, it was. Yeah, it's not like sending a goalie up for a corner at 2-1 down and the team, yeah. the team yeah, defending true. suddenly goes It was just incredibly sloppy play really and lazy play. play. <laughs> uh, really of a piece with what we'd seen in the previous 92 and a half minutes. Uh, and that was it more so than a, any sort of cavalier attitude that, that Arsenal took, I think, to try I, and get an equaliser. I then discovered that Thierry Henry was on Sky. So I actually recorded a bit of him. Oh, yeah. So I, no, I didn't see that. that. Um, and he was on with Graham Sooners. Graham Sooners, who obviously was, was really enjoying putting the boot into Arsenal. <laughs> really let down uh, let down Graham because I was actually watching it on Sky and Graham had uh, suggested at just you know a, a, oh, he did, a, a he did. final predictions then lads Graham says well I think Arsenal are going to do Monaco tonight I think yeah. they're going to give him a right good going over I've yeah. been talking to Simon with this who made the uh, good point that Graham Sooness is a lot like Roy Keane in that they're they're good analysts when things are going badly when it's about when it's when it quite clearly is actually just a lack of heart or a lack of passion or a lack of belief, and it's not too tactically nuanced. Sunes Keen, they're the kind of guys you want because they do get genuinely angry on TV. Mm. Whereas most people try to keep their emotions in check on TV. But sorry, but we were talking about Henri. Well, I got to I got to watch a bit of Henri, and and his style is is very much the man who wants to pour oil on troubled waters. He says uh, Sunes is there like smouldering and raging, right, and his face is turning kind of red. Uh, and as he as he castigates Arsenal's uh, performance, uh, you know the way he kind of starts. He, he kind of narrows his eyes and starts talking like, like a. Yeah, cancer. I remember you interviewing him on TV. <laughs> well, both of us, but seen in particular, he narrowed his eyes. At and your and Thierry Henry then is like the soul of kind of sort of conciliation. He's like, I agree with you. I want to agree with you on that <laughs> point. And you're just like, oh come on. <laughs> but they, he did have some interesting things to say about it. I mean, I don't know what relevance it had. Oh, they were they were talking about. They they seem to have a fixation with the fact that Arsenal's attack hadn't stretched the play enough. Uh, they uh, that they they too many of them wanted to come inside, and so all the you know defenders were sort of lined up. Found it quite easy for them to contain uh, mm. for Monaco. This to was the halftime narrative that uh, that they. Oh, okay. Yeah, that they've decided to return to. I mean, I think you could Because I, I was like, why are they talking about this? Yeah. This, I mean, this surely there were there were bigger issues in this game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, come on. Yeah. But uh, he, he, Henri was talking about how, you know, at, Guard, uh, at Barcelona, you know, you stay on the line. He, he was doing a, a kind of an impression of Guardiola, which sounded a lot like Thierry Henry. The, the Guardiola impression that he did sounded exactly like Thierry Henry. Um, but you stand, you stand on the line. You stand on the line. Uh, he, Henri's a winger. He's not allowed to move inside. He's not allowed to join the play. Stand on the line, or you come and sit with me on the bench and watch the game with me. Apparently, this is how Guardiola <laughs> managed the team. I can't imagine how this didn't work with Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Let's talk Ireland-England. Simon's popped over. Simon, how are you? Uh, very good, thanks, John. The, um, one thing I've noticed in the build-up to this game is that England, their players, their coaches, especially their media, are showing Ireland a lot of respect, which yeah. is all well and good. Uh, almost a little too much respect, bordering on fawning over Paul O'Connell in particular. Yeah, O'Connell, it almost seems like there's a bit of a campaign. Obviously, there isn't. Um, maybe indicative of England's lack of success in the last few years that they're not gloating too much and not too boastful. But 
we read earlier in the week about the out half George Ford um, speaking of his time, his youth spent in Ireland with his dad, who used to work with Ireland, obviously, um, and how he supports them when England aren't playing them. Um, about spending time with O'Gara and learning all the tricks of the trade off him. There was Will Greenwood earlier in the week speaking about how Ireland's returning players, such as Sean O'Brien Healy, and the form they might show being ominous, not just for England, but ominous for the world. Um, you referred as well to Paul Ackford in the London Times. Oh, on Monday's show, yeah. yeah this I, is I was talking to, to Paul O'Connell. About that. Yeah, Paul yeah. Ackford had said... Uh, that Paul O'Connell's speeches have often had teammates weeping in the dressing room. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Mick Cleary the other day in The Telegraph in England um, who's written a piece again about O'Connell that if it was written by an Irish writer, you would say it was way over the top. <laughs> but like, just to give an example, this yep. is a, a typical paragraph from it. O'Connell is defiant, unassuming, passionate, resilient and generous. He gives all of himself first and foremost. As he has done for the last 13 years, a tour of duty beyond the pale in this era of attritional body-breaking rugby forever steadfast, unflinching and ego-free. So you can imagine how O'Connell would feel about that. Yeah, yeah. Just a little over the top. Shane Horgan is based in London these days, Shane, so you're in a good position to tell us if you feel this respect being shown to O'Connell and to the team is, is genuine. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's part of a strategy uh, complicit with uh, English management. Um, I do think there's a genuine respect, uh, especially for Paul. He ticks a lot of boxes what people want from the rugby players. Um, he's um, a good leader. He's but he's not outspoken off the field. Um, he's physical, but that's not the main part of his game. He's a smart player as well, and uh, you can see that on the rugby field. So you know what people want from a rugby player: uh, a great competitor. Paul takes a lot of the boxes, um, and there's, he's really probably there's nobody left of his standing in Northern Hemisphere rugby just at the moment. Um, but that said, um, I don't think it's going to make it any easier for him at the weekend. Um, Ireland at the moment are a hard team to dislike. I think they're quite canny on the, the number one, the, the, their players, the way they play on the field, but also I think they're canny on, on the way they carry themselves off the field. Also, Ireland haven't been a nation, although they've been successful in the last 15 years, they haven't been a, a nation that have dominated rugby at any point or six nations at any point. Yes, they have um, won the championship last year. They're have a huge opportunity to win it this year. I'd say if you see them win a Grand Slam or a couple more Grand Slams in the next couple of years, there mightn't be quite as much love from um, <sighs> opposing uh, fans, at least. What do you mean by them being canny off the field, Ireland? Well, I just think uh, Joe Smith is a is a consummate media uh, performer. I think um, he probably wins with more grace than... Any other coach I've seen, uh, he always talks up uh, the opposition before and after the game. He's quite um, consistent on his messaging as well, and he actually shows himself to be human. You know, he 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 shows that he has. Um, he's, he's mentioned many times his own, um, maybe some of his own, what he perceives as his own failings or his concerns, and that makes him very human. And you know, people connect with. Joe, and as a result, they connect with the team. And the team also don't go shouting from the shoot, from the rooftops about how good they are. They sort of get on about their business in a workmanlike way, um, but always talking about you know the idea of putting a team first. Um, now that said, Ireland have done that, but England are doing that. This, are doing uh, similar, and uh, Lancaster has done it from the start. That's why this English team is likable, um, and even individuals that maybe 
you know, you, you would have had, you know, maybe not the most favorable impression of um, before Lancaster came into the job. He's now created such an environment uh, to make those players more accessible, uh, acceptable um, to the public, but also uh, from an overall team perspective. Um, England aren't the bogeyman that they were a number of years ago with the massive egos and the, the trampling all in front of them. They're a team that you think are very dogged and determined and anyone who likes rugby likes that. And then you add in the fact that they're starting to, you know, there's a younger um, generation of backs coming in who are starting to try and play some rugby. So it's not just all boring stuff. And those two things coupled together put us, put us in a situation where you've got two teams that, you know, a lot of people like at the moment. Shane, the teams get named tomorrow and well, the one thing we know for certain is Jamie Heaslip's out and we're almost certain as well that Jordy Murphy will take his place at number eight. This may be not getting the coverage it would if, say, somebody like Sexton was out, but is there, say, as big a gap between Heaslip and Jordy Murphy as there will be between Sexton and the next in line at out half? No, it's a different role as well. It's not, uh, you know, it's 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 not as key a role. I know that's kind of maybe uh, not an ideal thing to say um, about an eight who's been as successful uh, for Ireland as as Jamie has been and as influential as he is. But um, it, there still is there's not the um, necessity to um, to control the entire game at number eight that there is a ten and with Sexton and it's my pain to say and I'm boring myself at how often I've gone on about it I think the way he controls the game his uh, his selection uh, his choice selection and decision making is without parallel um, so the influence that he'll have on the game is is going to be necess- uh, necessarily greater than uh, a number eight even one as good as as Jamie is, um, and Jordy will come in. I think Joe, from very early on, has liked uh, Jordy Murphy um, playing, you know, f- at some role in the team or the squad. I think it was a big surprise probably last year was to me when Tommy O'Donnell was playing phenomenal rugby and uh, he was left out of the um, squad entirely. And, and that was mirrored again this year when I thought against Italy, although Jordy had, Murphy had a good game, I thought Tommy O'Donnell was exceptional against Italy. And I was kind of su- surprised not to see him um, start against France or be involved against France. Um, so, um, that's the situation as it stands. I don't think that I think Ireland they'll be necessarily weakened a little bit, but I don't think it's something that they can't overcome. Although the back row is a key area for England and one that they will try and assert their dominance in. And if they don't get, if England don't um, get at least par or um, sort of overpower the Irish back row, I don't think they have a hope of winning. All right, Shane, stay with us because we are delighted to be joined now uh, also by Stuart Barnes, who today has been announced as part of TV3's coverage of the World Cup this year. Stuart, good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Owen. The, uh, there's a World Cup theme, obviously, to everything that's happening in the Six Nations this year, particularly maybe this game for England. Uh, if we remember the 2003 Grand Slam game in Dublin, it was seen as one of those staging posts on the way to winning the World Cup that England needed to get over that hump of winning a Grand Slam and needed to then go and win in the Southern Hemisphere Ultimately, it ended up with glory for them in Australia. Would you be putting as much pressure on this England team to, to do the same, to go to Dublin and to win? No. Um, I, I think the key for England, because they're in Dublin, uh, a win would be fantastic. If England could win by seven, eight points, I think psychologically Ireland would have a big problem if the two did meet at the semi final. Uh, but if England lose by one point, they'll think, you know, we beat Ireland by four or five last year at Twickenham. We lost narrowly this year. We've got Twickenham. We've got an edge. I, I, 
I really think the pressure is on Ireland to win because if Ireland lose this game, I think England will have a really big advantage going into the semi-final if it is to be that way. So I think all the pressure is on Joe Smith and his team. Shane, you're lumping all the pressure on Ireland. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not certain if that's the case. I don't know if this can be, if you can look beyond the actual match itself of this weekend and the fact that it really is a, a Six Nations decider. Yeah, people talk about the World Cup and you know what's going to happen then, but it's a long way off and uh, the Six Nations is the prize at the moment. Um, it's very even Stevens going into the game. I think the odds are very short. Um, so, you know, whatever the result, unless it's a blowout, won't be a surprise either way. But uh, with home advantage, uh, Ireland, I think, are marginal favourites and, and deserve to be. Stuart, this English backline have come together quite late, a lot of it due to injuries and happenstance, but the likes of Ford and Joseph and Watson in particular have shone and have combined brilliantly. Is there, is, are there flaws? Because we wouldn't have seen as much of the English league uh, as, as you would have done. Are there flaws in their game that may be worked out by a coach like Joe Schmidt? Well, they're inexperienced. Um, Watson is a very exciting player. Um, I wouldn't say he's the most powerful uh, beneath a high ball, so I think Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton will put him under big pressure. Joseph, uh, because he's such a great runner, they say he's not a tackler. He is a tackler. He's not a tanker for tackler, but he makes his tackles. As for George Ford, um, he's the most complete back England has produced for many years. He has all the talents you want. He's got vision, he's got timing, um, but occasionally his game does struggle if his goal-kicking goes, uh, goes to pieces. He reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Johnny Sexton um, a few times over the years when you think such a complete fly half, but oh, if you had someone else in the team to take the pressure off with the goal-kicking. I think Sexton has now cleared that hurdle. I think Ford is still going up the hill towards it. So, um, you know, I, I think from Ireland's point of view, those three guys are three of the guys that they really need to worry about. I don't think they'll be looking to put pressure on him other than George Ford will be attacked defensively down his channel. But, you know, I think Brian O'Driscoll said to me the other day, he reminds him of Ronan O'Gara. He's not afraid to tackle. Um, he gets in there, but he's just not the greatest tackler. But Ford's all right. He's, he's not bad, and I don't think it'll be a winning advantage for Ireland there. Ireland had to pull... Uh, quite a few rabbits out of the hat last year, out of the Joe Schmidt playbook, I think, Stuart, despite having not a huge amount of possession uh, at Twickenham. And that was only enough ultimately to stay close. England pulled away. Will England yeah. be better prepared for those kind of plays? We're not going to see identical ones necessarily, but will they be a little bit better prepared for what Joe Schmidt and the Irish team will throw at them? I wouldn't be surprised if we do see identical ones. You know, it's the old Leinster play that we've seen in Europe for years. What I'm thinking with Ireland is that uh, it might well be three or four strike moves will not be unveiled, perhaps till they play France in the World Cup. And that's where I slightly disagree uh, with, with Shane. In the short term, everything is about this Six Nations match. But Grand Slams are one thing, World Cups are another. And I think Joe Smith, along with Stuart Lancaster and Gatland, has a longer-term plan. And if that has short-term impacts, then so be it. Although I would say I totally agree with Shane in that um, winning is the key for this weekend, no matter what. But, you know, like I say, if if England can win, I do honestly believe it'll have a big impact. And I think from Ireland's point of view, I don't think we'll see Ireland's World Cup game plan coming into effect quite yet, even though this puts him in with a shout of a grand slam. Who is going to win, uh, Shane, first? 
Um, I think it depends on a number of factors. I don't think it's it's a, a black and white. Um, if Ireland, um, they were, they, if you look at them, the, every metric almost apart from the uh, tries the, or the, the the score in the French game, Ireland lost, and that was a real concern. Um, they lost per- territory, they lost possession. Uh, so that if they do those two things, lose those two things against England, it's going to make things very difficult for them. Add into the fact that they had a, uh, a, a missed tackle rate higher than they normally have. I think that le- that's because of the, the lack of possession as well. If they give up um, the amount of, uh, of missed tackles that they have done in the, against the French, I think the England, English team will be more capable of scoring and that will uh, put them in a, um, in a much better position. I don't think Ireland will beat them under that circumstances. But if Ireland play with ambition, if they play with the accuracy that they haven't yet clicked with, in this uh, tournament, I think um, it's, for, it's Ireland's to win. I think they've got more talent and a, a better coach. Stuart, your prediction? I, I think if Ireland actually do use their backs and play with ambition, they might actually lose this game. I, I, I think the template for Ireland is the first 20 minutes against Australia and South Africa, where Murray and Sexton controlled territory. England now are very aware of the importance of territorial control and the danger for Ireland is this unleashed potential of the young England backs. But if they're playing 70 metres um, from the Irish try line, then I don't think England will be using their backs at all. There'll be a lot of kicking. So I think territory is the key. To me, if you said what wins it, I think Ireland, um, their best chance is the fact that they do less wrong than England England's best chance is they have potential to do a little bit more right than Ireland. I, I, I would say I think England's backs are extremely exciting and I think they've got an ability to turn this game. But I think territorially, um, the combination of O'Connell at the line-out with Devon Toner and Sexton and Murray gives Ireland a territorial edge. So if I was forced off the fence... Yep. I would say Ireland, but I wouldn't be putting a pound of my Cheltenham punting fund on this one. <laughs> Sir Barnes, Shane Horgan, great stuff. Enjoy the game. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Manian. Thanks. Uh, what do you think, Simon, of uh, Stuart Barnes? Oof, uh, going by Stuart's analysis there, Ireland are under intense strain and pressure and England are just going to arrive over without a care in the world, skipping around the Aviva Stadium not, on Sunday. We're not going to fall for this, are we? No, can we, I don't can we so. officially state that the pressure is on England, not Ireland? Eh... Uh, no, we can't. See, this is it. I mean, I, if there should be some sort of, you know, there, uh, seven days out, there should be a committee assembled to decide who's the favourite, who's the underdog, who's got a lot of pressure going into this game, and uh, what out half has the most to prove. I mean, there there should be like five decisions that have to be made seven days beforehand, rather than us scratching around for a narrative. I want it handed to me via email from the IRB. That would be a lot easier for us all to just get our heads around. World Rugby Nowmurf in new money. It'll always be the IRB to be, Yud. <laughs> it's just about time to welcome into studio a man who, even before his life was immortalised in one of the best sports movies of all time, had achieved legendary status as a fighter. Thanks in huge part to the bravery and courage he showed in his three fights against the great Arturo Gatti. Strength to tie Ward up. And here comes Gaddy back. Less than 10 seconds in the round. 
survived the round. This should be the round of the century. Ladies and gentlemen, Judge Steve Weisfeld, season 95, 93, all to the winner by majority decision. Yeah, we're delighted to be joined in studio by a legend of the ring, the man involved in one of the most famous trilogies in boxing history, Irish Mickey Ward. How are you? Doing good, guys. How are you? Oh, we're doing great. Yeah, welcome to, to Dublin. You just got in this morning? Got in this morning, yep. And uh, my, my clock's still off, but I'm, I'm doing okay. I was going to say, hopefully we can keep you awake for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, the jet no, no, no. Set, set in completely. You, you have been in Ireland before? You visited the country? Yes, I've been to Ireland. I've been, uh, I can't remember how many years ago, but it was like probably at least seven, I think. I was over in uh, Galway, in Connemara. I was over in uh, Sean Mannion's town, Rasmuck. Sean Mannion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, re- you saw all the bright lights there if you were over in uh, Rasmuck in Connemara <laughs> with Sean oh, Mannion. Yeah. yeah, not much of them. <laughs> uh, no, I suppose a man with your nickname is going to get a good welcome here anyway, Irish Mickey Ward. Although, I have read that that wasn't your first boxing nickname. Yeah, I had so many different nicknames when I first started. I had the, I, I looked young for my age. I was 19 when I turned pro, so I looked probably 16, you know? So they call me the babyface killer, the babyface assassin. I'm like, no, no, I'm not keeping that name. Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? And now, I'm the, uh, now i got the gray beard and everything, so I don't know. So the babyface killer <laughs> gave way in his early it's a 20s. gray beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who came up with, with Irish? I suppose it's an obvious... Uh... Not, honestly, I, do, I don't even know. It's just it, someone called me that in one interview, or not one interview, but... Some newspaper put put it out like that, and it just stuck. Because I'm Irish, you know. I mean, so I guess. What is the the Irish connection exactly? The Irish connection is on my on my mother and father's side from Clare and Cook, right? Uh, right I guess. Yeah. Uh, and I think there was some from England too over my father's side. But I think it's more. Um, my mother had Irish. My father was just about all Irish. So mm. it's hard, hard enough to grow up in Boston without any Irish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Irish well, my guy actually 26 miles north in Lowell. But Boston's, you know, if you say low to somebody over here or anywhere else, well, what the hell is that? Massachusetts, you know? yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just easier Boston. to say Boston for, yeah. for people. The big news in, in the boxing world in the last week or so is that uh, Mayweather and Pacquiao are finally going to get it on. Are you excited about that? Oh, yeah, b- um, big time. I, I mean, this fight should have been made years ago, but, I mean, I'm glad it's being made, you know, because obviously boxing, you know, it's... Boxing's never going to go away. It's, it's the, it's, I think it's the oldest sport there is. And, uh, you know, MMA has taken a lot over. But uh, this fight will bring a lot more fight, bring the fight fans back to boxing, I believe. Uh, because it's, it's a great fight and it's the best fight in the best. But they're not fighting at their best, I don't think, because, you know, they're a little bit older. And obviously they're still Hall of Famers, great fighters. But you know, time has passed, so I think... Uh, you know, they both got a little bit older, but it's still going to be a great fight. Mayweather in particular has been criticized for that, I think, Mickey, partly because there's, if they had made the first fight maybe five years ago, there would have been time to develop a rivalry and maybe fight a few times. Mayweather's a smart enough cookie. Maybe he decided to, to leave it a few years until Pacquiao's powers were waning. But you were involved in one of the great rivalries, one of the great trilogies with Arturo Gatti. Mm-hmm. Did, did they were your last three fights, the fights against Gatti? Yes, they were my last three. And uh, do they have, do they change the way you now look back in your career? Can you imagine have imagined how you would have looked back if you hadn't had that trilogy at the end? Well, yeah, I mean that like kind of like 
you know, put my name out there more than the movie came out, so that made my name out there more. But, uh, you know, up until the Gaddy stuff, you know, I had won, like, the WBU title, which is, like, is, is a world title, but it's not like the the other three, you know what I mean? So I might mean, have been known for just, probably just that, but with the, with, the Gall- with the Gaddy trilogy, that just brought it to a different level. Why? Did, how did that develop in that you, you won the first fight, so you're going to give the guy the rematch, then you fight a third time. I have read that you were reluctant maybe to fight the third fight. Is that right? No. Not at all? No, not at all. <laughs> no, I wanted to fight the third <laughs> one. See, the thing about the Toro and me is uh, we were never friends beforehand. We know. I mean, I, I respected what he did and stuff, but I, I didn't, you know, we weren't like friends like, hey, you know, I, I still wanted to take his head off when I was in there, you know. But, uh, you know, I gave him the rematch on the, on the first fight because I had offers to fight other people or whatever and, uh, but because it was such a great fight, and I, and plus I was getting a lot of money for the second one, that's why I, I, we we took it, you know, to fight a Toro. And in return, he didn't have to fight me the third one. But because of me giving him the fight for the second one, he kind of like said, okay, I want to just fight Mickey. I don't want to fight nobody else. I don't care how much it is he goes. Because, you know, I gave him the second fight. So he gave me the third fight. That's incredible. That's literally the opposite of how it often works in boxing, right. when everyone gets in the way of things. In this case, it's just the two men, the two boxers involved say, listen, we're men of our word and we're going to give each other a rematch if necessary. Right, exactly. And that's, and that's just how it went. And that's, you know, there was no, like, uh, money people around saying, no, no, you're going to fight over here and fight him. Because uh, the, the fights were so good that they, I think the public wanted us to fight for a second and third one. Even though you knew how tough he was and how, oh, how tough yeah. those fights were going to be, oh yeah, I knew I was going to the hospital, but <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> I can see uh, even how you describe that story. That shows possibly where your friendship developed from, because famously you went on to be involved in, in training him. Yeah, we became friends. Yeah, yeah. and you, uh, he tragically died uh, in two thousand and nine yes. in mysterious circumstances. Right. Uh, even since then, you've represented him at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony so that there's a bond that went right through your lives, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was a special bond we had. Uh, you know, the funny thing about it is people say, how could you, you know, get like him or how could you be such good friends with him after you guys try to take each other's heads off? You know, and um, the funny thing about it is uh, I remember when I was in the hospital room after me and Toro, we both went to the hospital after the fights. We went in different ambulances. So we go to the hospital and I'm in the, I'm in the room with the curtain up and uh, the doctor goes, you want, someone wants to say hi to you. And uh, they open the curtain up, and he's all banged. I'm all banged up. I'm getting stitches and cut all over. I had the, con- the concussions and all that. And he's in the other bed. He, they slide over, and it's him. <laughs> and the first thing he said to me, he goes, Mickey, not like any kind of BS. He's Mickey. He goes, you okay? And that hit me. like, and that, that, I mean, I always was a friend of his, but I just maybe like, it just like solidified it was like uh, how good of a guy he was you know what I mean uh, there was no BS there was just uh, two guys just trying to win and but it was, that's what really made our friendship like start right there when he says like uh, Mickey you okay and I mean for a guy to try was just taking my head off for like a half hour or so <laughs> to say that you know what I mean uh, you know he it's didn't have to say that he could have said hey good fight or you know you stunk or you whatever you know what I mean <laughs> he was, but, he was but genuinely he, concerned yeah, for you one yeah of, he was, one he was concerned that. you know and uh that's Does, how we became really good really friends. close. Does it feel as though there's uh, a gap in your life now? Because ideally, you know, this guy would have been around for many years, and you could have done the circuit together and talked together. Yeah. And now he's just—he's not around anymore. Right, exactly. And that's a good point because we could have been getting old together. I mean, it's not about money and all that stuff, but you, we could be making a lot of money together, going on different tours and and different fights and like whatever. Uh, 
you know, like two rivals, you know, that became friends and whatever. And I became his trainer and, you know, the story behind it and all that. But, uh, you know, like like you mentioned earlier that, you know, his life got taken uh, tragically too early. And so we'll never be able to do that. But uh, it was good. To, it was good memories. And it was good. Uh, he was a great guy. And it was good to go through with someone like him. Yeah. And I mean, and the fights endure, you know, and it's. They, 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 they haven't lost anything in the years since and to be honest the legend of that is you know th- those fights are, they're not going away they're on YouTube if you want to check them out you can check them out and they are just amazing sort of right. postscripts to both of your careers funny enough these fights don't feature in The Fighter and the movie that you mentioned earlier on uh, how do you look back at that movie now? I mean it was good I mean obviously I mean obviously like uh, Mark Wahlberg was telling me uh, Mark's a friend of mine so Mark was telling me he goes Mickey it's hard to put somebody's life in like two and a half hours or so, or so. never mind two people and then with my crazy brother Dickie the crazy stuff she, the crazy shit he was doing I mean come on you know what I mean it's off the wall but uh, he goes so we're gonna have to uh, obviously take some stuff I'll put things in to make it more appealing so everything wasn't exactly right like it happened in life but it was very very close like the sisters and my uh, wife they still don't like each other to this day. Uh, you know that. Oh yeah, that is that's all. That's, true. A, that's all. Bang oh on. yeah, all and you know, my mother and dad have have passed since the movie and stuff. So, but uh, there was my dad loved my wife, and I think that's the only person in my family that like 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 my wife pretty much. You know, um, all my sisters in it. You know, and uh, but I uh, but the movie was it, it came out good. It came out really good. But like I said, it was like. Uh, it all happened. Some things were worse than that. Some things weren't as bad. It's like it's 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 funny, you know. Uh, Some personal stuff there on the screen was yeah. it, was that not difficult for you and for your family to watch? I I got some my uh, fuse. Ah, fuck you, my sisters. My walk by. They go, ah, you S U C K. You know, you suck. I'm like, hey, listen. I go, hey, well, if they said the real story, it'd be worse. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the so they, oh f you. I go, all right, f me. <laughs> so it's the, it's the sisters who maybe weren't too happy oh, with their portrait. Jesus Christ, they they hated it. Nothing. They didn't really hate it, but they, they didn't like it that much. I got. I think they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look like that. He goes, yeah, look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I think a movie, I mean, secretly, come on, we all want a movie made about our lives. We'd yeah. all be intrigued to see what it's like. But especially when it turns out to be that that cool of a movie, winning a couple of Oscars, Mark Wahlberg, Christian Bale is just oh, absolutely yeah. ridiculous as your brother, Dickie Eckham. Christian Bale, I'm telling you, that, that guy, he uh, he's something else. I mean, Mark's, Mark's obviously a great actor. Christian Bale's a great actor, but and he goes the extra mile, extra mile and... You know, to get into character, he stays into character. He's like one of those guys that, that's why, he, you know, he won the Academy. He, it was so funny because if you were listening listen, listening to him, like, and you weren't in the same room, you'd think Dickie was in there. Really? He, like, I guess he lived Dickie the whole, like, months he was, like, getting ready for it. You know, even at home, he never got out of character. And I remember Christian Bale, Christian Bale's wife saying to me at the Oscars, uh, Oh, jeez, I'm glad this thing's over. He was driving me nuts, acting like your brother. <laughs> so he says in, like, mo- Dickie mode all day, and that, that was hard to do. How is Dickie now? Because he has had his problems since the movie. How has he been? He's doing okay. Uh, I'll knock on wood. Uh, he's, he's, it's a struggle every day for him, uh, but he's doing good. Yeah. He's, the- uh, uh, hopefully he's, uh, you know, he, he gets, gets on the right track, but he seems to be getting there. The... Clearly, you and just not not just from the movie, but from from reading interviews you've done, your relationship with Dicky is amazing, and that's what the movie is largely. It's a story of two brothers, right? That's uh, the thing. Yeah, that's that that's maybe the central part of it. Right. You really did idolize this guy growing up. This guy was a boxing hero of yours. Was oh, a, yeah. a personal hero. 
Yeah, because, I mean, he, uh, you know, I I started boxing because of him. I went down. He took me down to the gym when I was seven, my first fight. I fought at seven. And, uh, you know, look, you know, when you're a kid seven, you don't, you know, he's like eight years older than me. So he's, you know, he's taking me to the gym. You're looking up to him like he's, you know, that's your big brother. And, you know, he's, and then he won. He was a very good fighter. So, and he won numerous titles, like, like amateur titles, you know, and stuff like that. So I always looking up to him, you know, and, but. You know, at that at that point, but then like I, uh, I never really had a um, person that I want to say I want to be just like you know, or I want to fight because of this guy. You know, I just did it because I did it. I guess I don't know. I just I don't really never really had someone that I want to be like. Oh, I want to be just like him, or I want to be just like him. Nah, I, I don't know what it is, but I just once I start fighting, I just I idolize, but not idolized by you know I love, love watching like the old time fighters like you know um like Biscom Basilio. Um, what else is his name? Uh, Tony DeMarco from Boston, uh, Con Basilio, uh, all those older fighters. Yeah. that like those brawlers, you know. Uh, Robert De Niro, he played a raging bull. Jake LaMotta, guys like that, you know, just exciting guys. But, but I was a boxer when I first turned pro. I was I boxed all the time. Never stood there and banked until I got older and realized I can take a punch. <laughs> so I, I got stupid and stood there. <laughs> Did you uh, when you when you looked at Dicky and the issues with drugs that he had, or, or, or things that have happened in his life? Was that a, a lesson for you? Sometimes people have to learn from their own mistakes, but in some ways, could you learn from Dicky's mistake in that he, his talent maybe was overwhelmed by his troubles? And were you able to forge maybe a, a more straighter path for yourself yeah I actually seen it I mean I went through some problems with myself I mean not not like him obviously but uh, you know I had I've been my share of drinking like back in you know a few years back that back in not a lot but you know enough guy I don't I really don't drink no more not like that but uh, yeah to see it you know I'm uh, kind of said I don't want to be like that you know I don't want to um, have all this talent just let it go to waste if I'm going to do anything I'd rather just kill myself in the gym now and, and do it and then if I'm going to be a wacko or whatever, I'll do it after when my career's all over, you know. But, it, I mean, obviously I wouldn't do that. But, you know, just but seeing him go through that and things like that did kind of stand me away from it. You were involved. Two of those Gaddy fights were voted uh, Ring Magazine Fight of the Year. And previous to that, you fought Emmanuel Augustus, Emmanuel Burton uh, yeah. at the time. Uh, that was the Fight of the Year as well. We were re-watching that one last night. It's just absolutely incredible. It's, it's interesting to, that you said that originally... You were you were more of a boxer, and you developed into this crowd pleasing, all action puncher. Right. I mean, what's it like to be involved in a final round against a guy like Augustus, where the two of you are? I mean, it's like so, people might look at the fight scenes and the fighter and think, "Oh, that's a little bit embellished, or a little bit exaggerated." Right. But if they actually uh, go and watch you fight, yeah, it's almost understated the way yeah, they, they do yeah. in the movie. Yeah, I mean Burton, I mean Emil Augustus. Now he, um, that was a fight of the year we got in two thousand and one, uh, and. That he was as uh, all as tough as anybody, including Toro. You know, you know, he was as tough as all of them. That kid, he was very elusive. Uh, you know, he wasn't the biggest puncher, but he had a he had that awkward, herky jerky, crazy style. You know that I drove me nuts, and you know he was tough. He was just, you know, Floyd Mayweather. I guess to this day says that he's one of his toughest fights he's had. He had really yes. If you ask Floyd Mayweather in a lot of in a lot of articles where it says who was your toughest fight and he says Emmanuel Augustus, well, well Emmanuel Burton at that point at that time in his career, but he says Emmanuel Burton and uh, Emmanuel Burton is another guy that got shot in the head, shot in the head, but he's high up walking now. He's up walking and getting around, I guess. Now the, uh, he was, they were gonna um, 
pull a plug. You know, they didn't pull a plug, but he was at that point where they were almost going to do that. You know, right. But uh, he, you know, he's another guy that came is coming on the on the road or coming back from being tragically hurt, but not tragically, but being hurt and you know, but going through those things with uh, with Burton and Gaddy, it's just I look back now and say, what the hell was I thinking? Why didn't I move my head? <laughs> well, I guess when leather tastes like home cooking, it was time to get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem in incredibly good shape physically and yeah. mentally. You seem completely sharp, if you don't mind me saying, because I don't. Do you have any concerns about long term well, mental health? Good thing, like you said, uh, I suffer from post concussion syndrome. I uh, back in Boston, there's a doctor Robert Cantu that had doing that that, that study on fighter, uh, not fighters, but football players, hockey yeah. players. Yeah, sure. And I think I'm the only fighter right now. Donate my brain when I pass because I, I do have the post concussion. But the, my signs, I have no like. I have my you know I got I take medicine twice a day. Like. Different thing happens different times. Everyone's different. Like everyone's concussions are different. People all act different. I don't, I'm not like uh, some guys. You can't even understand. Like they they can't even like really speak. I feel bad for them. You know. Luckily, I'm not there yet, or, or hopefully, I never get there. But who knows down the road? But um, uh, but I, I I do have it. You know. And but I'm just uh, you know, if I keep healthy, so I think that that's that's a good point where if I was like uh, like uh, out of shape and blah blah blah, I probably I'd be worse. But uh. You know, I don't know how I don't, you know, people say, how do you talk? Like, how do you, you know, I talk to some fighters and it's like, I go, what the fuck did he say? You know, like, what the hell did he say? And it's not against the guy, but it's just, and I, but I, when I, I talk fast, so people say, man, what's he talking about? When I mean a Toro together, they was like, well, it was like two Chinese guys talking. You couldn't understand them. You know, I was like, blah, 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 blah. we got our own English. You know what I mean? We talked. We knew what each other was saying, but nobody else did. Well, how have the concussive symptoms manifest themselves in your life then? Well, you know, um, I went and seen my the doctor, head doctor because like after my last fight, you know, all the, the concussions I had, I had to uh, see a doctor. And I was diagnosed with, with post-concussion, and then I got involved with this with the study with Dr. Robert Cantu back in Boston to... Uh, of the football players and hockey players donating their brain when they pass, they actually donate your brain and a part of your uh, spinal cord. Right. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'm all for it. I says, uh, you know, why not try to help the next generation of fighters or not just fighters, anybody that has concussions, why not, you know, try to, like, uh, help that so they can kind of, like, I don't think you're ever going to get rid of concussions, but they can minimize them. They can kind of, like... Uh, you know, keep them at a low, hopefully. So, how has it affected? If you don't mind saying, how has it affected you, or how does it affect you on a daily basis? As you say, it's not—it's well, not obvious. Right. It's you know, you get tired a lot. You know, you get kind of cranky sometimes. I, I really can't tell, honestly. Um, and some people that don't really know me can't really tell. But people like my wife, my daughter, um, people close to me can tell, like how when I get in those moods, or you know, I'm not in a crazy mood. Where I'm going to rip the rip this place apart, <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? But it's just. Little things, you know, you know, well, you can't tell, but someone that's with me and knows me, they could tell, you know, like your mood swings, not mood, mood swings, I guess. And if I don't have my car, no, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, just little things, I guess. It's, it's nothing like a slurring thing, or it's nothing like uh, forgetting, you know. It's all, you know, your memory and see, I can remember, I can remember thirty years ago, like, like that. Yeah. Like two days ago, yeah, yesterday, it's like, what. Uh, you know, what I mean? not like, I remember it, but not like certain things. It's like, it's like it's weird. It's really interesting. It's all different. You know, everybody everybody's symptoms are different. Everybody's uh, how's every, 
how people act are different. You know, everyone's different how they act. So, but you know, knock on wood, I'm healthy and. I'm doing all right. It's really interesting that you've made that decision to donate your brain, as you say, uh, after you pass away. Clearly, you're, you're quite passionate in that. Uh, is, is the reason you just would like to help other people who are suffering any sort of symptoms and anything that can be done uh, ultimately in, in touch with many years' time when you pass away that can help is a good thing. Right. I mean, that, and that's what it's like all about pretty much is uh, now I did my stuff in the ring, I, whatever it may be, with, with life and stuff. Now I'll try to help the next generation of uh or maybe the generation after the next generation, I don't know, of, of trying to, you know, if I can give something to help that, you know, that I'm all for it. You're still living in Lowell, Massachusetts? Yes, I'm still in Lowell, yeah. Your hometown? Yeah, hopefully not for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, have you, have you tried to get away? Have you just... Uh... I mean, I was in Florida a couple of years ago, uh, a year and a half ago, two years. Uh, I was trying to fight this with Mike Tyson's company, Iron Mike Productions. Cause I'm a friend of Mike's, you know. I went down there. I was training for Iron Mike Productions. I was down there for yeah. I loved it down here in Florida, uh, you know. But I got an offer back home that's you know going to be very good doing some consultant stuff and you know and it's, and it's so I, I'm going to do that so because uh, you know it's less taxing on your body. You know, my I have the surgery on my hands. I got thumb surgery, double eye surgery, you know, shoulder surgery. El, I mean, elbow surgery. You know, the post-concussion. I'm, I'm holding the mitts every day and all that. It, it kills me. Is Lowell one of those places that you, in ways, you, you joke there you want to get away from it, but in other ways, it's it's your home. You're, yeah. you're actually quite passionate about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I joke when I say that because I, you know, I say that because I've been here for, um, I'll be 50 this year. So I've been here 50 years, you know, and it's, you know, maybe the next couple of years it's good to get, a, get out of there, get a change, you know. There's been talk of uh, over the years of a sequel to the fighter possibly taking in those fights with Gatti. Is that ever going to happen? Uh, yeah, well, I'm hoping. Um, you know, I think Mark wants to do it, but you know, you know, it's it's a long. He has a lot of lot on his plate. You know, Mark's a very very great guy, great actor. Uh, you know, a very good friend of mine, and, and he's very passionate about it. And and when he says he was going to do something, it might, you know, it might take longer than you th- you want, but when he says he's going to do something, he pretty much does it. So, I mean, and he has a lot of movies, so maybe it's on the back burner right now, but hopefully it does come out because it will show people, like, the friendship how me and Arturo had and the crazy fights we had and everything around it, you know. Yeah, it might be the only business uh, worse than boxing, though, as Hollywood for... uh, (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say, Mark, he's too busy making movies about teddy bears now. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I know. He's got to get back to the... Don't mind, you're getting soft. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it's been great talking to you, Mickey. I I do want to mention before we wrap up the chat that Mickey here is going to be at the Irish Sports Award event. It's going to be on the Doubletree Hotel. That used to be uh, called the Burlington. Burlington, Uh, There's a load of legends of sport there. Ronnie Delaney, DJ Carey, some Italian 90 heroes, and Mickey himself. And friend of the show, Steve Dawson from Bojack's Boxing Club in Dublin tells us that Mickey will be at the club tomorrow night as well so anyone who's uh, who's into that will be along to see it Mickey it's been actually brilliant talking to you I must say thanks, thanks so much thanks. especially that you're straight off the plane and haven't even had a chance to yeah. get the body clock right so we do <laughs> yeah. appreciate it I think I'll just get my body right when I'm getting back in Boston probably <laughs> <laughs> Mickey take care <laughs> thanks guys Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight somebody. John Hayes I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where I was close from. On 
Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do wanna give a fuck? Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Absolutely amazing having Mickey in studio there. I wasn't sure what to expect, but uh, I've been totally... What a lovely guy. I've just been totally charmed by him. Uh, very funny as well. No, I'm not too surprised that his sisters weren't overjoyed with the... Being port- portrayed as parents. Yeah. <laughs> Look in the mirror was his comeback to them. <laughs> I think, I think there's, there's, there's quite a lively, boisterous, uh, behind-the-scenes yeah, I mean, element to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to Mickey Ward's family life you've, growing you've, up. You, you fight, you make up, you fight, you make up. This is the dynamic in a lot of families. It's not unique to Mickey Ward. Uh, it's not unique to Irish families. Well, I, mean, if I have to say, in fairness, though, you, you don't actually have any sisters. I mean, myself and Ken do. Mm. And we should probably put on the record, Ken, that the relationship described in that interview between Mickey Ward and his sisters and portrayed in The Fighter, that's pretty much, I mean, it's indicative of how sisters are around the world, right? <laughs> well, hang on. You've got an older sister, right? Yes. I don't. So all I can say is I'm the head of the family. Oh, they, they immediately, they respect you and there's an innate respect there that just can't be. My, my sisters are sweetness and light. You know, that's all I'll say. The relationship with Gatti is astonishing, really, that these guys, I, I, I framed that conversation around Pacquiao Mayweather, who eventually are fighting now, certainly years after Pacquiao's best. I think, I think Mayweather could be quite, um, uh, could, could be somewhat dominant in that fight, but that's another story. The, that fight eventually happened. Some fights never do. Whereas Ward and Gatti said, listen, I respect you, you respect me. Doesn't matter what promoters say. Doesn't matter what anyone's saying. Doesn't matter that there's more money elsewhere, or that there might be a better opportunity to win elsewhere. We're going to take each other on here. It's almost unheard of in boxing, certainly in the last twenty years. Yeah, completely. And uh, the way it's, it, Mickey described it there, it's you know, I'm sure there were complications. I'm sure there were plenty of times in the negotiations where they could have walked away and they said, "Well, Arturo wanted to offer me that fight. He did everything he could. It just didn't work out, and vice versa." <laughs> But the fact that they actually stuck to their word and they did actually fight means that, the, the, I mean, the two of the, both of their legends, both of their reputations were enhanced out of all recognition as a result of those three fights. And, you know, both were well, by the time the third fight came around, they were both earning big money. I think Mickey Ward got over a million dollars, $1.2 million for the last fight, and uh, uh, which is obviously well-deserved when you're putting your body in that sort of peril, really. And that's another... And it's well-deserved because... Fight fans were going absolutely insane for these fights, you know, and like that's you know, and that's the the bottom line. So they, you know, they they did very well out of it, and they deserve to do very I well. I appreciate his honesty in talking about the impacts from those fights and from others on his health. Now it's really interesting to hear a guy who has thought about it that much and who's suffering in certain ways to actually uh, be open enough to chat about that. There's a big fight, meanwhile, Murph, in Belfast this weekend. Carl Frampton is defending his world title. Yeah, against uh, Chris Avalos uh, on Saturday night. And it is on UTV Ireland. I know maybe some people are unsure after the Champions League. Well, the Champions League's been ripped out, of, uh, <laughs> ripped out of ITV's coverage or UTV's coverage over here. Yeah, so uh, we can confirm that it is on Saturday night. Uh, uh, Frampton against Chris Avalos and uh, big names big names on uh, going to be ringside oh go on uh, movie maker Jim Sheridan who of course Barry McGuigan helped train Daniel Day-Lewis for uh, The Boxer that movie set uh, in Belfast in, made in the mid-90s Marcus Munford lead singer of uh, Munford and Sons uh, Bono and the Edge are going to be oh Munford the lead Munf- Munford <laughs> is uh, married to Carrie Mulligan 
the actress from The Great Gatsby and others. Right. Uh, she's also going to be there. Born on the Edge and Pride of Place in this Belfast Telegraph art- article that I was reading. Eamon Holmes is also <laughs> going to be at the fight. The key, so. Murph, is for the master ceremonies to be aware of who these people are, though. I do remember yeah. one Bernard Dunn fight in particular where the celebs uh, on the front row were all being introduced to the crowd. This is separate from the time that the Irish... Football team. Irish football team got booed. They were booed. The rugby players were hailed as heroes. But the master ceremonies were saying, and we've got members of the Irish rugby team who've beaten England today, or whatever it might have yeah. been. And everyone's like, yeah. It's like, first of all, uh, Mike Hogan, actually Shane Horgan, but uh, <laughs> a sheepish way by Shane Horgan. And he didn't even know Brian O'Driscoll. It was literally Bob Driscoll or something along these lines. <laughs> O'Driscoll's waving equally as sheepish. Just well, not, listen, know your what audience are the chances of someone, of someone not knowing who Eamon Holmes is? We've got an Irish Times second captain's football podcast already out. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I wanted to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, but it's not saying it to you now. now. Come down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? (laughs) Talking about Champions League going, Arsenal obviously lost, Manchester City lost. yeah, so we're not a great week for the Premier League. Yeah. Very bad. Uh, we're going to talk also about uh, Qatar and the Winter World Cup. Well, we have talked about all those things. I'm saying, using the wrong ten zone. We've That's talked good. about all those things, and you can listen to them whenever you like. You can also listen to the show that we did in the Sugar Club on Monday. That is available for podcast. Has been for a couple of days. Brian Kerr and Richie Sadler, in particular, in particularly good form. Once again, if Richie Sadler is listening, I. I apologise for <coughs> Frank cake, cake issue. Yeah. Totally forgetting that he had made a, a, a cake. Well, he bought. Let's not go nuts here. Well, he had a cake made yeah. with Frank's yeah. visage on it, and that, it brought us a very tasty cake. Extremely tasty. I uh, had my head stuck into the cake for the purposes of a ill-judged online <laughs> gag. <laughs> uh, but uh, so once again, I mean, if, if I was going, if I was going to stick my head into any cake. That's the cake I'd choose. Ireland's cricketers are two wins and two in the World Cup. A spectacular victory in their opener against the West Indies is followed by a nail-biter in a game they were expected to win easily against the UAE. Ireland rescued by Kevin O'Brien, who blasted a half-century in 24 balls at the Gabba in Brisbane. Kevin joins us now from Canberra. Kevin, thanks for taking the time to chat to us. Congratulations on the two wins. Uh, the second, the game against the UAE essay, uh, was maybe a bit more dramatic than you guys would have planned it? Yeah, definitely. I think... Um Give all credit to the UAE. They played a, they played very well. You know they batted well at the the back end of their innings. Um, you know and they they put the ball in the right area when we went out the bat. So we kind of got in a little bit of a, a muddle there in the middle. But you know with the experience of of, of Gary and myself and and Cusy at the end, you know we got over the line. Yeah, I mean it, it's such a highly pressurized situation, and yet at the same time. You know, you blasted one six, and there's a big, broad smile on your face. There is, uh, I suppose, you've been there before, and you've performed at the very high le- highest level before. So there is a sense where you can kind of let the hair down and actually, actually enjoy the, the pressure of the situation. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a very nervous watcher of a cricket game. Right. Um, but once I get out into the middle, you know, everything, everything settles down, and, and I'm, and I'm in control of, of my emotions and. And, and of course of, of the game situation. So, you know, I was very nervous in the lead up to me, to me going out the bat. Um, but once I got into the middle, you know, everything relaxed. And you know, I've I've gained a lot of experience over the last two or three years <clears throat> playing, you know, in various tournaments. And, and and I suppose I've seen probably most situations 
in cricket. <clears throat> so you know, I can always look back on those experiences to uh, to pull us through. Is that something you've always had, or is it that those experiences you've talked about over the last few years that have cemented that just that calmness in a pressure situation? Because that's what sports people are looking for, uh, really, all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm a fairly laid back character anyway. If you ask anyone in the team, um, you know, I don't get too pent up or too frustrated with things you know I, I know my strengths and you know I know my weaknesses which is a vital part of, of being successful um, but you know I just love to try and take on every challenge that I'm dealt with um, you know I like being in the thick of things and you know I, I like you know the, the captain handing me the ball looking for vital wickets or, or going out there and scoring quick runs um, you know I, I, I feel I thrive under that type of pressure and, and that's the situations that I, that I love to be in so Hopefully for the rest of the tournament we don't get into such situations in the next few games, but um, if, if needed, fingers crossed, I can uh, pull something out of the bag again. Yeah, well, you did lose your cool at one stage while, while bowling, Kevin. I think you've been fined a bit of uh, a bit of your match fee for some descent there. Can it be a little bit difficult to bite your lips sometimes? Oh, I mean, not, well, first of all, it's a, it was a foolish piece of behaviour by me, but, you know, that's just the way it is. You know, I'm, I'm a, whole, a wholehearted cricketer, you know, and... I suppose I, I go towards the line most times, but unfortunately yesterday I just overstepped. But you know, I, I accepted my uh, my fine, and you know, hopefully I can keep my tongue in check the next uh, next few games, and you know that that'll be the last of, of what we saw yesterday. Yeah, there's been so much talk about uh, reducing the tournament size from 14 teams just to 10 uh, for the 2019 version of the World Cup, and. Obviously, it's a huge cause for you guys as Irish cricketers um, to try and make sure that, you know, first of all, you make it to 2019 because you, you still have a chance of making it in 2019, even if the ICC have made it a lot harder for you. Does it kind of, you know, is that something that you can actually think about in the middle of a World Cup? Or do you have to just say, right, this is the 2015 World Cup and we're actually here to qualify for the quarterfinals and see how good we are as cricketers and forget about all of the sort of external noise about playing for a cause or playing for the future of the game in the country Yeah I think so I mean, it's not just the Irish team fighting the cause you know there's Scotland, Afghanistan and, and also the UAE you know and I think the four teams the four of us have, have played very good cricket um, at various stages in the, ga- in, in the games we've played you know Afghanistan had Sri Lanka well under, under pressure you know, I think they reduced them to 50 for five or something at one stage in, in an earlier game. And, you know, Scotland beat, almost beat the West Indies in a warm-up game. So I think the four teams, you know, it's a lot's been said about the reduction of the World Cup. Um, and I think what's what's great for, from our point of view and is a, a lot of ex-senior players and some current players are, are, are standing up and saying the World Cup should be at worst kept the same you know it's a it's a it's a global game and 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 everyone's trying to increase the participation numbers and and, and try and grow the game as much as we can and, and i think it's a it's a great it's a great coup for for not just the irish team but but for everyone who's fighting the same battle to try and increase increase the world cup you know and and hopefully from performances in the next couple of weeks we can we can uh, continue to to get wins and, and and hopefully you know come 2019 the ICC might uh, reverse the decision yeah it's a really weird one in that in some sports the big tournaments are getting almost too bloated whereas in cricket they're talking about taking away some good teams from the tournament it's strange but just lastly Kevin you're at South Africa as you said next Tuesday it's a funny one we always hear about the footballers and some of their sports going to major tournaments and having to deal with the boredom of being away for a long period of time I guess a cricketer is going to be more used to that anyway but how, how are you guys passing your time off the field there 
Yeah, you know, between our first and second game, we had nine days. Um, you know, we went up the Gold Coast for a couple of days just to rest, and unfortunately the beach was closed due to the cyclone that hit Brisbane. Um, so that was a bit of a wasted journey, to be fair. But we've got another... <laughs> Just, just, we just, just under a week now before we play South Africa. So, um, I think a few of us are heading out to the golf course tomorrow morning, um, and we've got a, a reception in the ambassador's house here in Canberra. So we're all looking forward to that. That should be a good fun um, before we get back to training on Saturday. So we've got three, three strong days of training um, to prepare for Tuesday's game. But I think there's a fierce table tennis tournament going ahead. <laughs> Um, between a few of the guys and I think uh, Andrew Balberni and Gary Wilson are leading the table at the moment Alright, sounds like plenty going on off the, uh, uh, off the pitch Anyway, listen Kevin, well done again and best of luck next Tuesday Thanks a million Thank you very much, cheers Well, it sounds like the cricketers don't have any of the boredom issues suffered by footballers at major tournaments Ken, all you need to do is play some table tennis mm. uh, Have um, I like the sound of that uh, reception with the Irish ambassador in Canberra mm. I mean, people just immediately think Ferrer Rocher but I'm sure that there is more to an ambassadorial reception than just you know <laughs> it is a basic requirement a pyramid of I was at an ambassadorial reception in uh, Seoul yeah yeah uh, was it just for you or was it for a general a more general world I'm presuming no, World Cup it was during the World Cup yeah. it was the Ken Early ambassadorial reception no it was like the, the Irish ambassador's reception for, the, for Ken Early no for like the Ireland team or whatever mm-hmm. um, Ferrer Rocher served no, uh, I don't remember much about it. Actually, it's a long time ago now. That it ambassador nice. immediately lost his position. I remember thinking that the ambassador the lived in a, the hell are you doing in a pretty sweet uh, mansion there in the in the hills? Uh, Seoul is a, is a very beautiful city. Actually, it's kind of situated on these hills, uh, and I vaguely remember the Irish ambassador's mansion being uh, thinking, "Yeah, this is quite a setup he's got here." Mm. I mean, I suppose that that's general practice for. They usually don't live, you know, above a chip shop. That's, you know, that doesn't really send out well, the right message for well, the Irish well, that's abroad. Well, that's the thing, though. That's the, that's a strange. That's the difference between there are countries in which it's considered uh, it would be considered embarrassing for the ambassador to live in a place, you know, that an ordinary person might live in. You know, the ambassador apparently should should live in like a, he's he's like a, a, a multi millionaire film producer or something. Mm. That's what is that's the kind of house an ambassador should live in. And then there are countries in which um, it would be con- it's considered outrageous for for public representatives to display to show so much money. So that they that they should actually, I believe, a case of these uh, two countries with widely divergent attitudes towards this are Holland and Belgium, neighboring countries uh, in Belgium. Um, you know, if the prime minister was to go on holidays to some, you know, to, in a caravan, yeah, by the you know the local sort of beach, the sand dunes, um, <clears throat> the country would be up in arms. How could he shame the name of Belgium in such a way? Whereas in Holland, it's quite the opposite. If the if the prime minister was to jet off to Miami or, or I don't know wherever Tuscany, I don't know somewhere and squander loads of money on and staying in a beautiful villa, they don't like that there. One final point about the cricket. I was watching. Uh, I watched some of the game live on Sky Sports. What are you? <laughs> Sorry, no. I, I, Sorry, but... I literally wanted like a ten-minute discussion about ambassadorial. Oh, you were still going? No, no, no. no I, oh, I'm sorry, it's a, I didn't realise. I, I looked over at you, Murph. We've been no, working long enough. I looked over. I usually good. know by how you look whether or not you want to come back in on no, a point Ken makes. Yeah. What's going to come on? No, I was just. I was just. It's interesting, you know. That maybe the Belgians just they're inherent. They're inherently unsure of themselves as a country. So are you saying that like the the Irish are similarly unsure I don't know. of our place in the world? We're more we're more in the Belgian um, 
camp, it seems. Mm. We certainly yeah. are camping because now that you mention it, I, well, I can't believe I forgot my own visit to an ambassadorial residence. It was in Addis Ababa. Oh, yeah. In Ethiopia, obviously. And Nala. what was it like? Quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite nice up on a hill. Yeah. Now that's what I'm talking about. Obi David says as he walks in the door. Clear, clean, <laughs> this is what I expected. Yeah. For the ambassadorial lungs. <laughs> you know, and great views over Addis. Uh, by now, well, you know, I suppose that's that's uh, that's what we've agreed on as a nation. Can I make my point now about the cricket? The last point I wanted to make, please, Jude. Well, I was watching some of it in Sky, and then I was watching the highlights on UTV uh, with English commentary with ITV. Mm. See, I'm confused. This whole UTV Ireland thing is confusing me now that we can't watch the Champions League anymore on ITV. But mm. I do, I do, I, th- I think I understand the business model and the business structure. I was watching the highlights anyway. Australian commentary commentators, English commentators. That's that's all we need to remember yeah. here. In both but- cases, there was a lot of. Abigara, uh, look at the Irish. Chat. Fun, the in the in the ITV commentary, right? You had during the the highlights, you had uh, the Irish eyes looked like they're not going to be smiling tonight, right? Then you had, oh, in fact, it looks like the Irish eyes might be smiling, and then eventually, yes, the Irish eyes will be smiling. He kept coming back to this clunky metaphor, right? But earlier, I've been watching on Sky Sports and been ba- banging on about four leaf clovers and look at the Irish and these kind of things. And I thought, this is this is just disgraceful, this reinforcing of tired old stereotypes of what it is to be an Irish person in 2014. Then the camera 15. pans, in 2015, then the camera pans to a man in the audience, in the, in the crowd, uh, wearing a jacket covered, festooned with shamrocks. I, Big green jacket. I think this guy could have been the general of the Blarney Army. I think he could have been. He's the commander-in-chief. I immediately had to delete the tweet that I was in the middle of sending. <laughs> I said, well, I, I adapted the tweet somewhat because this guy was the, the, the general of the army. And I don't know how high we can get on our high horse with the, um, with the mm. amount of... I mean, the, the leprechaun suit appears yeah. to how be do you the know official he uniform of the Blarney Army. How do you know he wasn't like a provocateur? You know, uh, is there any evidence that this man was a genuine member of the Blarney Army? Or? I'm, I'm just going to... He looked like an Irishman. Yeah, you can always tell. You can, can't. You? There was also <laughs> in this occasion yeah. he was an Irishman. There was a respectful distance being kept by the fans around him as well. You know, a lot yeah. of them. There's groups of say twenty and thirty closer. Yeah. He was on his own, sitting there enjoying it, not getting too close That's to the, the commander in chief. Exactly. You know, you don't want to get too familiar. All right. Hope you enjoyed this show. We we really enjoyed bringing it to you. Um, in particular, Irish Mickey Ward. Great having him in studio. And we will. Uh, well, yeah. You've, you've already listened to the interview. But if you if, if you want to tell your friends to have a listen, irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. You can also follow us on Twitter at second captains, and you can listen through iTunes, SoundCloud, all the all those means. Thanks very much to you, Murph. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Ken, Ambassador thank you Ken. Too, uh, Kieran. Thank you. <laughs> Th- thanks, Ken, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.